Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is conductor Gary Thor Wado. He's led performances with opera companies, orchestras, festivals, and choral organizations throughout North America. And although he's conducted music from many different eras and styles, Wado specializes in historically informed performances of operas from the 17th and 18th centuries. A few years ago, he even did something that sounds impossible. He conducted a premiere of a brand new opera by the Baroque composer Telemann. Gary has been a member of the Juilliard School faculty since 1994, but he's also worked with young musicians all over the country at places like the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University, where he got his undergraduate degree as a student of piano virtuoso George Ballette. Recently, Gary was back on campus to conduct an IU opera production of Handel's Giulio Cesare. While he was here, he joined me in the WFIU studios. Gary Thor Wado, welcome to Profiles. Thank you so much, Aaron. I'm happy to be here. You were born in LaPorte, Indiana. I certainly was. Now, I don't know much about LaPorte, but I did look it up. Are you aware that on the website for the town of LaPorte, it refers to itself as, and I quote, the hub of awesome? (laughs) I wasn't aware of that, but it is. It is. It's awesome. I'm a slicer. I'm a proud slicer. People from LaPorte are slicers. What's the derivation of slicer? Uh, well, the high school teams were supported by a slicing machine company, I think starting in the 20s, and so we were known as the slicers, and we sliced up our opponents. That does sound pretty intimidating, yeah, doesn't it? it? Is. Now, did you live there long? How long were you in Laporte? Well, until I moved to Bloomington to come here to school, so until I was about 18. What was your first musical memory? Um, well, church. Certainly, we had a very energetic program of music in our church. Our preacher, one of his sons, was a very successful composer. He won the Prix de Rome, and he had studied with my piano teacher, who was the organist at our church. So it was kind of just part of my growing up. I went to church. We had this big musical experience in church. I sang in the choir. I started taking piano lessons. Then I took organ lessons. I started playing in church. We had a very lively musical community in my hometown. The community concert series was very active. The Indianapolis Symphony came, I think, every other year. I heard many great artists play in LaPorte. So I'm very lucky. I had a great education as a child growing up. When I was in high school, I came to Indiana University for high school music camp and studied with great teachers here. Frina Bolt, who was a phenomenal pianist and then later a student of Sidney Foster's. For a kid in rural Indiana, I had a very sophisticated musical education for what I could do. Well, I'm wondering just how unusual that was because I think that when people imagine 
what it was like growing up and deciding to go into music as a profession. I think the movie that's in a lot of their heads is this kid overcame adversity. No one else was interested in music. Everyone tried to dissuade <laughs> him from going into music. It was a desolate town. He was the only one with any talent, and he triumphed and emerged. But it sounds like you were yet another product of a pretty robust music education and yes. musical environment, yes. no matter the size of the town. No, absolutely. We had in Laporte, and I think still, there's a big tradition of supporting music, supporting the arts, supporting the theater. When I was in high school, my piano teacher thought I needed a bigger musical experience. So we went to Chicago and took organ lessons at Northwestern University then often saw the symphony or the ballet or theater. I think it was an excuse for her to go to the symphony and the ballet. She was a very interesting lady, Florence Andrew. She had studied with a student of von Bülow, the pianist, and she said that when he taught her, he put on a cloak that list had given him. You've got to be kidding. No. So she went to the New England Conservatory, which is also one of my alma maters, and he sat there cloaked in the cloak of list as he taught her. I love that story because music is an apprenticeship. You study with somebody who studied with somebody, and I love this idea that he sat there cloaked in list as he was imparting to Florence Andrew, who then came back to Laporte and imparted to me her knowledge. Now, I want to talk more in depth about music education, your music education, but while we're on that point, music as an apprenticeship, as a trade model of learning— as with anything, some things change over time, some things don't. Do you still find that to be as much the case, that music is, is still a trade now because there's been so many innovations in education and pressures, economic pressures, the things in the university system and the conservatory system? When you look around now, especially since you work with students so often, do you find that to be the same? Yes. You learn by doing. That's the only way. You can sit in a studio, you can sit with a teacher, but because I work mostly in opera, opera is a profession, is a art form where you can only learn in the cauldron. You can only learn by doing. You can't learn about it in a book. There's no theoretical opera. No, no. Opera is people. It's not a widget factory. It's how do you relate to people? How do you respond to people? How do you deal with people's needs? And it's this very subtle kind of chemistry that develops in an opera company. I like to tell people in an opera rehearsal room, everybody is the most important person. People like to say, oh, you're the conductor. You're the most important person. But there's the diva. There's the stage manager. There is the set designer. They all have these huge responsibilities and these huge needs. So it's really a team effort. And you have to row together. 
and you have to know when to lead, when to follow, when to be part of the team. It's great. It's inspiring. So coming from Laporte and yes. in the musical upbringing, tell me about when you walked through the door, when you walked out of Laporte yeah. uh, to Bloomington, what was that like? Well, it was great. It was a great summer camp. I'm sure it was a recruitment idea, and it worked. I studied with great people. We had great musical experiences. I remember George Krieger conducting the choirs. I was part of the mass choirs. I took part in group lessons. We had wonderful accompanying lessons. And then I came here as a student. I came here to study with Sidney Foster, who had a technique. He was a marvelous pianist and a wonderful teacher. And when I got here, he said, I'm very sorry, but I'm completely full. Too many returning students have come back. But my colleague, George Bullett, is new this semester, and perhaps he would have room for you. So I went to see Mr. Bullett, and he did indeed accept me. And in retrospect, it was a great idea. It was a great happening because George was a big musician. He had studied conducting with Fritz Reiner. He was very interested in vocal music. He, of course, played all the Liszt operatic transcriptions he knew opera, he knew song repertoire, and it was really he who saw that, well, I, I knew I was never going to be a great pianist, but it was a tool to get me somewhere else. And I fell into playing for voice lessons through a friend of mine who said, I need a pianist at my lesson today or Margaret Harshaw will kick me out of the studio. Come play for my voice lesson. And I fell in love with that, making music with someone else. So I began playing for all these great voice teachers who were here at the time. And of course, now there's a new generation of voice teachers, just as great. But when I was here, there was Margaret Harshaw, Eileen Farrell for a bit. There was Inka Milanoff. It was truly fantastic to walk down the hall and see all these great teachers and great personalities. And I learned so much in those studios about making music. And Mr. Bullett supported this so entirely, and he saw when I played for these singers, he came to a recital I played, and he said, why don't you play that way when you play for me? And it was a light bulb moment. I realized I was more interested in making music with people than in playing a Haydn sonata. I didn't have that kind of ego, but I enjoyed the collaboration process, which for me in the repertoire I do, I think that's what conducting is about, collaborating, inspiring, getting people to work together. When George Bullett asked you after hearing you accompany someone in a recital, why don't you play like that with what we work on? Why don't you play like that for me? Did he elaborate on what he meant by like that? 
He was mostly shaking me. <laughs> he was about 6'4", and he was built like a linebacker. He looked very little like a pianist. The singer said she was scared because he picked me up and shook me and yelled, why don't you play like that when you play for me? But then we realized immediately that it was this spark that I felt, and he understood. He was very intuitive and practical, and so from that moment on, we redirected my studies. And he, along with Sidney Foster, they both said, we think you're going to go the conducting route because you can think about music that way. You think about making music with other people. Ironically, I think George didn't like playing concertos because he always felt he knew the concerto so much better than the conductor. And he felt most of the time he was teaching the concerto to the conductor so he wasn't lifted up by that experience, and he far preferred solo repertoire where he could express himself so completely. Speaking of George Bolet expressing himself, I understand he had something of a reputation for not sufficiently honoring the music of the composers whose works he played. In other words, he was going to play the music how he wanted. And yet I saw Bolet say in an interview that any student of his will tell you that nobody had more respect than he did for the urtext, the original notes, as the composer wrote them. You were his student. Do you think that he was someone who had that much respect for the original intention of the composer? Absolutely. But I'm so glad you brought that up because there is evidence of him saying this. There are a couple of recorded interviews with him. He played the Liszt transcriptions so many times in public and on modern pianos and in big halls. He would revoice certain passages to bring out what he thought was what Liszt wanted. So I think this is a greater authenticity to the text than a kind of urtext playing what the composer wrote down. And in one of his interviews, he says, these are improvisations that Liszt wrote down once. I've played these hundreds of times, and I think I have the right, and more than that, the responsibility of clarifying, amplifying what I feel Liszt was intending. I've done too much contemporary music and participated in world premieres at Santa Fe, at City Opera, assisting different conductors, and seeing after an orchestra rehearsal the composer and the conductor grabbing the score, grabbing the parts, going back to a studio and editing the orchestra parts because it is an ongoing situation. And we're doing here at Indiana Handel's Giulio Cesare. Handel 
revised Giulio Cesare, I think, three or four times for different casts. Sadly, now Handel is dead. We don't have his assistance for these productions. We have wonderful singers, but with individual abilities and needs. So we're subtly adjusting our urtext to make the singer sound good. And I think that's what Handel would have wanted. That's something I learned from George, that the most important thing is to have a point of view about the music, to shape the music to your point of view. Just a personal example, I played for my graduation recital a Chopin Tarantella, a kind of obscure piece, and he would say, oh, Gary, we're going to add octaves here. Well, I was like, oh, George, I can barely play what's written. No, 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 no. This will be the Wado version. I thought, no, this is the Bolette version, but you can say it's the Wado <laughs> version. So I, I struggled and I worked hard and I added the octaves and I added double thirds here. And it was pretty fantastic, not the way I played it, but the way he envisioned it. And then a couple of years later, I heard Arthur Rubinstein play exactly the same piece. And I sat on the stage because it was sold out. And I sat just feet from him. And where I had added octaves and double thirds, Arthur Rubinstein left things out so he could play it faster. So I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is what people do. But they're doing it for the music. They're doing it to show their point of view, their interpretation. And George used to say, I go to a concert not to hear Chopin, but I go to a concert to hear what Courtauld thinks about Chopin or what Brendel thinks about Beethoven or how Rachmaninoff will play Rachmaninoff. I want to know their attitude. You're listening to Profiles, from WFIU. Our guest is Gary Thor Wado, a conductor who was once a student of the pianist you're hearing now, George Ballette. So from the Jacobs School to the New England Conservatory, you already mentioned how George Ballette saw in you a budding conductor. What role did John Moriarty at NEC play in nurturing that? John was opera exemplified. I studied art song with him. I accompanied in his opera classes. He knew opera backwards and forwards. He was a wonderful opera conductor. And then for a while, I worked for him at the Boston Conservatory after I graduated. He was like a Herbert von Karajan. He would conduct the operas, but he also stage-directed them. He was one-stop shopping. One-stop shopping. And it was fabulous because he had this kind of big idea. He would teach the classes in how he felt he had been a devotee of Boris Godofsky. So he had Boris Godofsky's idea about how you presented yourself on stage. He had the classes, and then 
out of that, he would develop the staging for the opera. And he gave me a very great gift that I wasn't even aware of getting, which was when we got to the stagings of the operas, he would take over the staging and he would say, okay, Gary, you conduct now while I direct. And so I would be his assistant conductor. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't have a overwhelming urge to conduct. I, I wanted to be helpful. And at that time, I started working for Tom Dunn and the Handel and Haydn Society. And Tom also encouraged me to conduct in small ways. But I think I was so impressed by these great conductors that I saw, by their incredible skills, that I went very slowly in my transition, kind of step by step, assisting in rehearsals, assisting as a continuo player, occasionally doing a small cantata, and learning step by step, which I think is a wonderful way to learn a skill. You have also been a vocal coach a lot, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit because it seems to me that the vocal coach is one of the unsung heroes of the whole. Oh, gosh, it occurs to me how terrible a pun that is. I'm so sorry, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it, that they're the unsung heroes of this enterprise. And they also seem to have a lot in common with conductors because to be a vocal coach, it seems you need to know the opera, the repertoire, backwards and forwards. You're intimately familiar with it, and you're doing tons of score preparation all the time just so you can bring a singer up to speed. So was that transition for you from coach into conductor kind of seamless, considering how important just the knowledge, the thorough knowledge of a given work had to be? Absolutely. And it was so easy because of where I was. Here at IU, with all these great singers and voice teachers, I would sit and hear them work with the singers. I tried to understand about vocal technique. I even studied voice for a short time here with Gianna D'Angelo, mainly because she was so glamorous and I kind of fell in love with her. And I thought it would be fun to try and learn to sing. And learn the technique because, of course, every instrumentalist, if you go into any studio of an instrumentalist, they say, sing that phrase. Try to sing more. Uh, we want more diction here. Try more rhetoric here. So it's all connected to the human voice. So I think the more conductors understand how the human voice functions, how singers breathe, how they have to breathe, how they shape a phrase, they'll be a better conductor. So I had this training here at IU that I didn't even know I was getting, sitting there watching singers work. Then at New England Conservatory with John, studying the language, he made you sing. When you played, you sang every phrase as you were playing. So you learned the text and the vocal line, and you were responsible for singing it accurately as you were playing it. 
And then you saw him work, how he would inspire the singers, shape the singers, give them advice in terms of interpretation. So many of the great composers and early conductors, they work so seamlessly with singers. Many of the great composers slash conductors, Mozart, uh, Richard Strauss, Verdi, they all spring to mind. They were married to singers. So there's this very intimate connection with them. And I think many of them, there was this back and forth inspiration between them. When they met a singer that could do something extraordinary, it inspired the composer to write something extraordinary. I think we wouldn't have a lot of Handel's later oratorios if it hadn't have been for John Beard, the great tenor. Certainly Verdi and Streponi, we wouldn't have had those later operas if it hadn't been for her guidance. And Collis wouldn't have been Collis if it hadn't have been for Seraphine coaching her and shaping her and, and encouraging her in her choice of repertoire. So I think it's essential that a conductor, if you're going into the operatic repertoire, you understand singers, you understand how to work with them, you understand their vocabulary, you understand how the mechanism works, you understand their needs. They're fragile animals, and they have a lot of needs. Their instrument is very fragile. It's just a couple centimeters of tissue. Exactly. I mean, a cold, a change in the weather, dust backstage, you know, all of this can change your performance. You don't have an instrument you can hold in your hand, but it's you. You argue with your partner. You run over your cat on the way to the theater. I mean, these things will all affect your emotional state. If you have a piano, that's outside your body. The piano has no feelings other than those you put into it. But if you're trying to sing when you're upset or angry or sad, that all affects your voice. I love when I rehearse with the orchestra to bring singers in at the very beginning. Rather than, let's prepare the orchestra, and then we'll bring the singers in. Whenever I can, I want the singers in there at the very beginning. Because, especially with early music, it's all about rhetoric. It's all about the text. And I find people that play early music, they want to know what the text is. Is this sad? Is this angry? Is this vengeance or is this rage? And immediately it changes how they play it in this subtle way that an instrumentalist, now they can probably explain it. I used a little less bow pressure and I articulated more. But I find it's quicker and more interesting to the instrumentalists if you put it in a more poetic 
way. And if you have a singer demonstrating that affect, that feeling for them. And then, of course, for the singer, this type of music, this early music, which, may I say, is the foundation of all music. Verdi said, if you want to learn something new, look to the past. For singers, hearing the orchestra, hearing that underpinning, hearing the bass, and hearing how they must continually interact with the harmony, with the movement of the bass. Is it a dance? What kind of dance is it? How does the harmony move? Where is the dissonance? They suddenly come alive in a different way than when they're just thinking about their own line. We all spend so much time on our technique, playing even scales, finding the way for the singer to sustain and have good intonation, string players developing this incredibly advanced technique on these very complicated instruments. But then I think the metaphor sets people free to experiment and to become bigger musicians. Conductor and early music specialist, Gary Thor Wado. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. You mentioned that you were performing with the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston. And I don't want to say that you specialize only in this because, of course, you perform all other sorts of music as well. But you are something of an early music specialist. And so I guess you were boots on the ground during the movement. And yes, I I am working the the air quotes here for the radio listeners uh, back with Handel and Haydn Society. What does historically informed performance mean to you? Wow. Well, I think you never stop searching. You never stop reading, re-examining, going back to every source you can find. We're so lucky in a way now historically informed performance of Stravinsky, wow, what resources we have. In a way, it's almost limiting because breaks progress, we have his recording. Uh, We have many, many evidences of how he wanted it performed. But with something like Handel or Mozart, we have to intuit more. And one of the things I love about this is it leaves a little bit of room for your personality in it. How do you interpret what Tozzi or Geminiani or Leopold Mozart said about how these things should be played? Because we don't have recordings of how they actually were played, but we have descriptions, we have treatises, 
course, often the thing about treatises is they're complaining about how things were done and they shouldn't be done that way. Well, and you also don't know if that's just one person that made the writer angry or they've exactly. got a beef with or whether they're speaking to a larger prevailing condition. Exactly. And yeah. they didn't like what that person was doing. So they said, oh, that was so wrong. And when they say this is how it should be done, you don't know if that's because that's how it was being done at the time or this person just had their own way of imagining this is how we should sing or play or what have you. Yes. So they're a little slippery, I guess, treatises. Yes. They are. They're an opinion. They're a point of view. They're one person's opinion. I love in Gemignani's treatise on playing the violin, he was a proponent of vibrato, the close shake. And he said, it's so beautiful, you should put it everywhere. His editor was so incensed about this that in the second edition, he struck that sentence out in the reissue of his treatise and just left it out. So there you are. And I think about Schumann and his two, I think they were made-up critics, Floristan and Eusebius, the romantic and the purist. I think in every era, you must have had somebody who was the experimenter, who was far out there. I think Handel may have been like this. He certainly had his opinions, but... He wanted to hear what Senosino was doing, and he wanted to hear the new ornaments that Cuzzoni or Bordoni would have brought in, rather than saying, I only demand that you do these ornaments. He wanted to learn and wanted to keep learning the new styles so then he could incorporate them. When he came to England, he studied Purcell so he could become more English. I love that. It wasn't, I'm Handel and I know everything. He was like, what's popular in England? I'll become more Purcell-like. And What are the kids into? What are the kids into? I love that. That's so great. It's, it's, it's hot. I told the cast of Giulio Cesare, I said, everything in Giulio Cesare is a dance. And they were the popular dances, and they were sexy dances, minuets. We think of a minuet as old and stodgy, but a minuet was hot because you got to dance with your partner and you got to be somewhat close to your partner, paniers and lace and everything aside. And we have some Sicilianos, and that's a very sexy dance. So I'm telling the cast, you have to think that this is like Hamilton and not like an old-fashioned opera, but it's sexy and alive and trendy. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're singing to this kind of a dance. Yes. That's probably what audiences might have said back in those days. Yes, exactly. Like, wow, it's a, how, how scandalous. How scandalous. Oh, my God, they're doing a minuet on stage. Well, take that, Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> you said something a little earlier about how you have seen, on many occasions, working with composers who are premiering a new work. You've seen them hash out a score, change things, get the parts, go back to a practice room and make something work for the moment. You mentioned how Handel, the creator of so many masterworks, he was constantly revising stuff. He was revising his operas. He was revising Messiah, depending on the needs he had, the soloists he was working with. 
I was wondering if there are any other ways in which you identified with Handel the man, because it seems like you find yourself in the same situation a lot, not just because you're working on music of that time, but because you're no stranger to these gaps to fill in and these changes to make to meet necessity. Well, I think above all practicality, I think many early music composers, what you see over and over and over again in their letters and in their compositions is practicality. What do we have? Who do we have? Who do we have available? Wow, we've got them? Wow, I'm going to write such arias you won't believe it. And I love um, Messiah, the different versions, you know, the very difficult tenor aria, Thou shalt break them in pieces. In pieces like a Very hard to sing comes at a crucial moment in the oratorio. At one point, clearly, Handel did not have a very good tenor, so this big long aria in one of his revisions became a 22nd secco recitative. Thou shalt break them in pieces like a potter's vessel, chunk. So he turned an aria into Meanwhile Back at the Ranch. Yes, exactly, because the singer clearly couldn't sing it, and he was practical. Let's move on. Let's make something else splendid happen. So if anything, I would like to feel I emulate that. What I love about our business and what I wish maybe world leaders could understand a little bit better is we open. We open at a certain date and many times you wish for more rehearsal time or many times you wish for, you know, a better this or a better that or if only or whatever, but the curtain is going up at eight o'clock and there are people who paid money to see the show. The show must go on. And I love that feeling. It's energizing and it's focusing and it makes you do your best work with what you have. And then the next time you try and do better, always trying to do better. You've been called a champion of young singers. Now, apart from your time here at the Jacob School working on Giulio Cesare, uh, you were a director of the Young Artists Training Program for the Canadian Opera Company. You've also worked with emerging artists at Wolf Trap at San Francisco Opera's Merola Program. Yes. Is your process working with students markedly different when you're working in a so-called professional context with Seattle Opera or any number of other people you're working with. What are the similarities and differences in dealing with those immediate things? You, you inspire and you put out fires, right? Would that right. be fair to say you're, you're yeah, always going to be doing some of both? So is the mix any different when you're working with the pros versus the up-and-coming students? Well, the pros, many of them, they know exactly what they want. 
They know exactly what they need. We're doing this Giulio Cesare here, and it's being directed by Robin Guarino, who's a wonderful friend and collaborator. We've done many things. One thing we've done together was Giulio Cesare for the Seattle Opera, starring Eva Podlesch. Well, Miss Podlesch had done Giulio Cesare many, many times. She knew exactly what tempos worked for her. She knew even what staging she liked to do. And Robin and I tried to make her feel comfortable. And that is part of my job, I feel. Not to impose, oh, I feel this aria should go at this tempo. It's, you know what tempo you sing this aria best at. You know how you sound best. That's my job to give that to you. Now, a younger singer may be singing that aria for the first time. So my journey, my job is to help them discover that tempo. Let's try it a little faster. Let's try it a little slower. Maybe, you know, a different key. Let's try this. Maybe this isn't your aria. It's discovery more with younger singers. And with the pros, you are often enabling them to do what they know they do best. And I find that inspiring, too, because that often inspires you to look in yourself and say, wow, that's really great. Now, how can I respond to that to do something really cool? So you're always having to be on your toes and respond with your best. If we could, let's talk for a little bit about an example from your own career that does two things. For one thing, it levels the playing field. It makes everyone a student. No one can be that experienced diva who knows exactly what the right tempo is. At the same time, it puts you right on the cutting edge of what it means to be a performer and an interpreter of historically informed music. A couple of years back with New York City Opera, you gave the Western world premiere of a newly discovered opera by Telemann, Orpheus. So a brand spanking new 18th century opera. (laughs) What was it like working on that and getting that on its feet? It was fabulous. It is a great opera. And I have to give a little caveat because Wolf Trap Opera had actually performed it a couple of years before. Ah. So we gave the New York... The New York premiere. It was one of the best experiences of my life. I did it with my partner, Larry Lipnick, who's a gombist and recorder player. And Telemann lived in Hamburg. And what a practical man. Talk about practicality. He ran the Hamburg Opera. And Hamburg is a port city. So his operas were in German, Italian, and French. Now, wait, hold on. You don't mean that they had versions of them in all those three different languages. They all existed in the same opera. In the same evening. A little something for everybody. Yes, a little something for everybody. The characters, most of the storytelling was in German. And then they'd get to the big arias. They would be in Italian, in an Italian style. And then there would be moments where there would be dancing 
or French-style arias, and those would be sung in French. So if you were visiting Hamburg from France, you could go to the opera and hear some French arias and see some French ballet. If you were from Italy, you could go and hear some rage arias and some opera seria. And if you were visiting from the country outside of Hamburg, you could go to the opera and enjoy a good story. Well, now, wait a minute. I want to press pause on this for a second and dwell on this, because what you're talking about is opera history distilled in one opera. You know, opera history was always about, well, the Italians have figured out the vocal thing, and, and there's got to be some dance in there, and the French people do that. But to have it all actually so, if you'll forgive me for calling it this, so on the nose. Yeah. You know, you've got the German stuff in German, the Italian stuff in Italian. It's really explicitly identified. It is the most extraordinary moment. And it is a beautiful evening in the theater because you have this kind of constantly shifting musical style because he wrote authentically in these styles. The German portions, they often sound a little bit to me like Bach passions. And the Italian arias sound absolutely out of uh, Handel or Scarlatti opera. And the French could be written by Lully. So it's fantastic. And we had a tiny little orchestra, and we performed in the Museo del Barrio on the Upper East Side, which was built as a beautiful orphanage in the 20s by a millionaire who believed that orphans should be raised in a beautiful surrounding. So the theater in the center, that is the centerpiece of the building, is a jewel box theater. It looks like it's out of Venice. And it has these beautiful murals of fairy tales. So... Here we were putting on the Ur fairy tale for musicians in this jewel box surrounding with these, um, they, I can't remember the name of the painter, but they were arts and crafts murals of fairy tales. It was extraordinary. You're listening to Profiles, from WFIU. Our guest is conductor and early music specialist, Gary Thor Wado. You mentioned a little while ago that at this point we find ourselves looking at historically informed performances of later and later works. You mentioned Stravinsky and you know, there are other examples like Wagner, people who really yes. approaches to these composers way later than perhaps the time period we associate with the movement, historically informed performance. I'm kind of wondering whether at this moment there really is a historically informed movement anymore. Uh, Because I know one thing that you do that it's kind of in your job description is you're going to work with ensembles that all have modern instruments. They're not gut strings. And you're trying to impart that aesthetic of an earlier time to people who aren't necessarily steeped in it. And I know it goes the other way, too, where you have worked on pieces that are newly composed, but for 
ancient instruments like gut strings, the theorbo, the big super lute with the neck long enough you could land a plane on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all this, I know that you had the I Have No Stories to Tell that you worked on a while back at uh, Opera Philadelphia, I think it was, yes. where you combined Monteverdi's Tancredi and Clorinda, that little madrigal yes. proto-opera thing, yes. kind of before opera was opera, and combined it with a brand new work about a soldier coming back from presumably the Middle East and yeah. dealing with post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder. That work was composed for ancient instruments, and they were kind of on a double bill together. Yes. So uh, I'm sorry, that's a rather long-winded question that lost its way somewhere in there. But <laughs> given that you've worked in so many different versions of historically informed performance, is the movement still around, or is it just kind of evolved into just making music? Oh, what a great question. Well, I wanted to follow up something we said earlier. When I first started working for the Handel and Haydn Society and Tom Dunn, it was all modern players. And one of the things I did, I was Tom's librarian. The parts were so carefully marked because... These were modern players who were used to playing Mahler. And so they would play what they saw. If there was not a marking over the note, they would play it exactly like that. And I like to say we've been Mahlerized. (laughs) Um, Mahler was so specific about how he wanted every phrase played and every note Played. Well, the guy wrote novellas and the parts. There are these long stretches of commands in German exactly. over the music about exactly what you have to do. Exactly. But he did an interesting thing that I'm not sure is so good. When he was at the Vienna Opera, he took away a lot of the performance practice that had been happening in Mozart, and he made them play Comiscrito, As written. As written, which in the scores is long stretches of piano with no inflection and long stretches of forte with no inflection. But I'm convinced that's not how that music was played by Mozart and his contemporaries. They just didn't have to write it down the way Mahler wrote down his music because they only played one style of music. They only played contemporary music. So they knew where to inflect. They knew how to phrase. They knew where to lift. Also, they played with earlier authentic instruments. So the bows were different. The keyboards were different. They couldn't do the things late 19th century musicians could do. So the instruments dictated a lot of time how the music was played. In the 70s, when I started working for the Handel and Haydn Society, What we had to do was to shape the parts that the players saw to make them play as if they were 18th century musicians without them thinking about why. So that they wouldn't bridle at it. They'd just do it. They would do it. They would do it. And, of course, like many professional organizations, 
you didn't have a lot of rehearsal time, so you couldn't explain, well, no, we're putting an accent there or a tenuto there because it's a dissonant note. No, that note is softer because it's a resolution. We're lifting there because it's the end of a phrase. It follows a punctuation mark in the vocal line. Now, Aaron, it has so changed. I work with a lot of young instrumentalists and not so young instrumentalists. I did Coronation of Popea at Cincinnati Opera. We used a wonderful early music band as the kind of nut of the orchestra, the continuo section, catacoustic, led by Annalisa Papano. But then we had the string section from the Cincinnati Symphony, who all restrung their instruments with gut strings and used Baroque bows, willingly and happily. And our wonderful concertmaster in that performance ornamented brilliantly, freely, and differently every night. And not only that, but I said to him, you know, there are three little arias that the singers sing, and if I had had time, I would have written a little obligato section. Where? Tell me where. I said, well, you know, these bars, these bars, these bars. He said, well, do you mind if I try something? He picked up his violin and just kind of played along, which is exactly, I'm convinced, would have happened in Monteverdi's day. So today, musicians are much more flexible. At Juilliard, where I teach, there is a early music department, and now we see it's not just for specialists. A lot of string players take a couple of semesters, a broke violin, because they know they're going to get opportunities to work if they can double on modern violin. Friday night, I got a gig on broke violin, so I've got another job. You know, it's a different world now, and we're creating musicians that are thinking in a bigger way. They're being trained in earlier styles of music. And one of the things I try to do when I work with a younger orchestra and say, we're shaping the music this way because it's not the way we did it maybe 30 years ago where we're shaping the music this way because that's the way the parts are marked. We're shaping the music this way because it's a minuet or because this is the way the harmony is. And the orchestra here at Indiana University, they're curious, they're interested. Shine Ra, who is our continuo cellist, she's working so hard. She came to a rehearsal the other day, a staging rehearsal, and, you know, you repeat and you repeat and... We had already done the scene, and I said, you can go home now. She said, oh, can I stay? I'm having so much fun. It's like victory, 
That's a win. That's a win. That's what you want. That's a win. Uh, do you find that you have to explain things less? I mean, if things really are changing that much, did you have to say, well, it's this way because it's a minuet less frequently? Are there students coming to you saying, oh, well, yeah, I know why we're doing it this way? Yes. Absolutely, yes. And now several times, I haven't done it here, I regret, but several times I've had a ballet master come into the orchestra rehearsal and we have 20 minutes and we get everybody up and we teach the orchestra the minuet. Wow. So they know the moves to the music they've been playing, some of them, for their, their whole musical lives. Yeah. And they love it. They love it. It's wonderful. It's fun. They get to put their instruments down. They get to use their whole body, which I think is important for instrumentalists. And of course, in the 18th century, there wasn't one instrumentalist that didn't understand what a minuet was. Bach danced the minuet. I'm sure Handel could dance a minuet. That was just what you did. Can you dance a minuet? Badly. <laughs> but boy, I tell you, when that orchestra got up and danced a minuet, I thought, well, I can't stand on the sidelines and watch. I have to participate. So, yeah, I do too. I'm clearly talking to someone who loves what they do. So it, it. it sounds like you're kind of in the middle of your own musical dream. I'm wondering if there is a musical dream you feel you have yet to fulfill. Wow. Um... So many, I feel so grateful and happy. But there are so many operas. And I love how the opera world is responding to this crisis, because I think there is a crisis in classical music and opera, how to get people in, how to stay relevant. Um, we're not just doing, oh, let's do Bohem. Oh, Bohem always gets people in. We're doing interesting new things. We're rethinking how to do old pieces. So I want to be part of that. I want to rethink how I do pieces that I've done before. And I want to continue working with young people and getting them interested in early music. Gary Thorwado, welcome once again to Indiana. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been so great speaking with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. What a pleasure. Gary Thorwado, conductor, early music specialist, and occasional dancer of the minuet. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, the executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.